0: Legend Father Robertson says that when a McGrief murders a blood relation, the latter does not die but
1: turns into a vampire.
2: Episode 60 of The Bloody Pit. My name is Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. And we are here tonight to talk about another Antonio Margariti film. If you don't know who Antonio Margariti is, we'll get to that in a moment. But I have a vital Octoberish type question for you, Mr. Hudson. Something that everyone has an opinion on and that we need to know yours right here and now, being this time of year. What is, in your opinion, the best flavor of Monster cereal. Ah, an easy one. That would be blueberry. Ah, we yeah. are in it. We are in agreement, sir. And your reasons would be because it's the
3: best. <laughs> Honestly, when I was a kid, I liked blueberry the best. Okay. And I liked um, Frankenberry quite a bit. Yeah. Count Chocula never tasted very good to me for some reason, and I'm mm. not quite sure why. I just did not care for the chocolate. The, the the various flavors the sort of yeah, subtle yeah. rainbow of brown it it didn't quite work for me as well as the others. I liked fruit brute too when I was little. I remember that, but blueberry's always been my favorite.
2: All right, all right. well, I'm, I'm, mine is mine is blueberry as well. I, I love the the subtle nuance of the blueberry flavoring. Uh, I, I feel that the the, the frankenberry although good is is a little much of a, a sledgehammer blow to the tongue mm-hmm. but the booberry the booberry is a nice subtle nuanced uh a layered attempt to entice you into a a, a flavorful experience i agree and plus
3: booberry has a cool hat <laughs>
2: And he also, also looks completely stoned. Stoned. He
3: does. I was gonna say the same thing. He always looks like he has definitely had some
2: boo, if you know what I mean. And I think you do. <laughs> he's he's definitely hiding a bong somewhere under the couch. So Oh yes. <laughs> well, this being uh this being October, I don't know. I, I know that you uh you've seen a couple of things recently you wanted you wanted to just mention briefly. Yeah, um, one
3: is an older film that I um, saw on Blu-ray recently and had never seen before and just fell in love with and that's The Hunting Party.
0: Oh, the with, the, uh, the
3: Spaghetti Western with Oliver Reed and yes. Gene Hackman? Yeah, Gene Hackman in Candysburg and I'd never seen it, and it was one of those deals where Kino had a sale that was $8 or $10, yeah. and, this looks interesting, and I thought it was great, and then after I watched it, I looked at some of the extras and seen how like Leonard Maltin rated it a bomb and how it was hated, and it was like how is was this hated this much? I mean, I can understand how it would turn some people off with the violence and the subject matter, but I thought it was just a really
2: and that weird that film. weird scene with the peaches. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit odd. That was that was an odd sort of date rapey kind of eating a eating peaches out of a jar. Kind of, it was weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, was it would a make scene. a man like peaches. Uh, well, and Candace Bergen, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, I'll never forget the. I saw that years ago. I have not rewatched it in man years and years and years but what i saw was a was a crappy bootleg and i did not appreciate the film at the time but a lot of it stood out not just because of the the actors that were in it but i do remember this incredibly cruel moment in the movie where uh gene hackman who if i remember correctly is rather villainous uh is in bed with this uh i think it's a young chinese woman Mm -hmm. and he just he just like puts a cigarette or a cigar out on her skin just just to watch her flinch Am, yeah. I, am I? Am I? Uh, am that, That's right. right
3: yeah. yeah, Gene Hackman being a bad guy in a western. Who would have thought of that? <laughs> <laughs> who would have thought that would
2: be a good thing? Except mm-hmm. oh, two or three other directors. <laughs> Let me see: uh, Clint Eastwood, Sam Raimi. Anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in, interesting pick and one that I, I. It's a film that I've been meaning to go back and rewatch. Uh, I have not picked that up yet, though. Oh, well, and the Kino Blu-ray is. It's a, like like you'd expect from their stuff. It's really nice. So. Well, you and I, I mean, uh, our our Belcourt luck here has been wonderful the past few weeks because they've been going through a bunch of, uh, they're calling it uh, Italio shock. They've been showing a lot of uh, giallo and... Um Basically, just uh, murder mystery thrillers made in Italy, mostly in the mostly in the seventies. I think all of them may actually be in the seventies. There's a uh, well, Black Sunday is in. There. Oh no, no, that's true. Black Sunday's in there, and they've even included a couple of what I would call horror films, which would be something along the lines of there's Black Sunday and um, Suspiria is getting a few spins. Mm-hmm. I would not. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't call Bay of Blood uh, a Jallo. Uh, it's a body count film. It's a great mm-hmm. early uh, precursor to the to the later slasher films. But, uh, yeah, you and I, have got I've gotten to see three of them so far, and you've seen two of them? I've seen
3: two, but one of the two I saw in two different versions. We, we both oh. saw What Have You Done to Solage um, just a couple days yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it's a great movie. And the real treat for me is they had the uh, touring print of Suspiria from Italy, the Italian language version, which they showed. And it was just really cool to see it in Italian. It's the same... The same movie, there aren't any scenes different or anything, but it's the original Italian language. Was it subtitled? It was, well, what it was, it's actually kind of neat. The The film wasn't subtitled, but they did um, a, like a live PowerPoint presentation and shot the subtitles under the film. Oh, okay. And um, so it was, it was really cool to see an actual real print from Italy from the 70s. Yeah. But both showings sold out. So they yeah, I'm aware. That's why I didn't get this yet. So to make up for that, they also screened, and this was really a treat. Was they screened the new Don May restoration of Suspiria?
2: Oh, the 4K yeah. restoration, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And let me tell you, folks, because this podcast will come out before the Blu-ray comes out. Don't have any worries about what it's going to look like. It is gorgeous.
2: I, I, I can't wait. Just
3: gorgeous. Yeah. It's, I can't it's really something. So if you have a chance to see that in a the theater, do. I know it's making the rounds. So yeah. So definitely can't recommend that highly enough. Well, it's it's Suspiria on the big screen. That's a that's yeah. kind of a given. So yeah. Yeah, and this is really nice. I mean, the textures, of course, the colors just pop right off. And the Belcourt had it cranked up really nice and loud too. Well, they,
2: they they almost had uh, what have you done to Solange cranked a little too loud. I, I noticed felt, that too because then. it's there was a little uh, on the high end. There was a little bit of distortion. I mm-hmm. felt, but uh, I'd rather have that than it be too low. Yeah, but the. Um, I also uh, got to see uh, "Don't Torture Do- Don't Tor- Don't Torture a Duckling" the Lucio Fulci Jalo uh, from '72. Now I'm going to get that wrong. Anyway, uh, great great movie. Another one that I hadn't seen in years, and mm-hmm. it was great to see on the big screen. It looked fantastic. And then also uh, saw uh, Sergio Martino's uh, "Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key." which was amazing to see again. I'd forgotten just how good that movie is and how twisty and turny it gets at the end, which I think is fantastic. I love that movie. And I'm so
3: jealous of that. I was going that night, and I was laid out with a cold, which I still am fighting through, so if you hear any coughs or <laughs> so on, forgive me. But I had to cancel, and... Uh, I wish you'd been there, man. It was. Great. I do, too. I do, uh, too. I really hate that I missed that one. That was one of the big ones i penciled in, like, I can't wait to see this, and then just couldn't do
2: it. Ah, uh, well... <sighs> Not everybody has. Uh, we live in Nashville, folks, and we're very lucky to have a wonderful theater like the Belcourt that uh, does all kinds of stuff. There's a number of. They, every October they also do um, a lot of documentaries. They call it Doctober, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a couple of doc. There's a couple of uh, documentaries they're planning to show. That Mansfield '66 '67 documentary looks phenomenally interesting as a, uh, that i did not know all that stuff about uh, jane mansfield and uh, her association with uh, the head of the, the church of satan which i think is just highly entertaining to uh, to delve into that's a whole area of her life i had no idea about i knew about her heinous you know car crash death but mm-hmm. this happened before that uh, i would assume so it's funny, funny that I am not I'm glad you I'm glad you cleared that. Yeah. I, I was fuzzy, fuzzy on the time. I'm quite line. the expert on this. God. Anyway, <laughs> that's just sad. So, what we'll do now is take a quick break and then we will come back and we're going to discuss uh, Antonio Margariti's film, Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye. It's a colorful movie. Yes, it is. With some interesting and variable accents. <laughs>
4: Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, 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 It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, rude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction,
3: horror and fantasy movies. But how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this
0: shit for half a century? Hi, my name's Terry Frost and I do the Martian Drive-In
3: Podcast, a podcast where I look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century. I look at fantasy, horror and science fiction and talk about them sometimes with the guests, sometimes by myself but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar if it was ever on your
0: radar so go to marsdrivemin.blogspot.com or type martian driving podcast into itunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre
4: talk and keep watching the skies
2: Deaths in a Cat's Eye from 1973 is described generally as a giallo horror film um, I've had my problems with calling it a, a giallo in the past because uh, to my mind uh, giallos are always uh, urban set murder mystery mm-hmm. thrillers uh, but then I think back to it and I'm like maybe I'm being a little maybe I'm I'm splitting hairs too finely with well my, you could go either way I know when we
3: did our last show and I, I called it a giallo at the end and, Yeah. And when I had seen, <coughs> excuse me, folks, when I had seen it before, it had been a while, so I was remembering straight razors and black gloves. And as yeah. I watched it again, it was like, this isn't quite as jally as I remember it being, but yeah. it definitely has a lot of the elements. So I think you could,
2: basically, you could say you're right either way. If you say it is, you're right, and if it isn't, you're right. And it's not. It it's got. Um, it does have that element. It does have a you know a black gloved killer murder mystery, wielding a straight razor to, to slash throats. Um, of course, it's got a lot of other elements. And the thing that, the thing that really pushes me away from calling it a part of that subgenre is, uh, the time period. Because it appears to be taking place in the, the 1920s or 30s. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around in there. Yeah, they uh, mentioned a new doctor named Freud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. at one point, which kind of puts it around in there. And, uh, this big Scottish castle where everything takes place, uh, doesn't have electricity they're they're using uh, you know uh, gas gas lighting and uh, you know uh, uh, oil lamps and things of that nature to, to light everything and uh, there there are no telephones around although there are you know there are telephones because they they have a telephone in the castle but it's 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 not like it is now folks that telephones probably in one room mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to go to it and it's a rare thing to use, and considered a luxury to a large degree. But it's a, um, I guess I guess it is part of the genre to a degree. But there's so many other elements. It's always seemed to be to be much more of a gothic horror film mm-hmm. than anything else. That's all right. Mixing various genres is something that I enjoy about European exploitation. I I, I, I get a kick out of it. And this movie's got a lot of that kind of stuff going on. It's um. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to split too many hairs. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist about what Jalo uh, are, but I'm not going to go crazy. Uh, it may be stretching things a little bit, but you know, black glove, black glove killer with straight razor fixation. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I like I said. Either way, I think you're okay. And the thing is, you know, Margarita made several gothics in the '60s. And even, you know, Web of the Spider in 1970. Which this felt a lot like at times yeah. as far as the feel and the set design and everything. Yeah. And, and not a bad thing. No, not a bad thing at all. And, it, and it's him doing a gothic in color, which is something that I think that uh, a lot of directors found a certain difficulty with. There's the, the famous uh, story that um, sometime in either the late 60s or early 70s, I can't remember which, a producer was trying to convince Mario Bava to remake Black's, uh, Black Sunday in color. And he and his his son Lamberto rewatched the film and kind of kicked the idea around and then it, he decided that it, it just not something that he could do in color and so the project never happened until in the 80s when Lamberto decided to make his version of <laughs> black sunday aka the mask of satan and uh that is one weird film people if you want to seek out an interesting lamberto bava film check out uh the baby bava's version of <laughs> of the mask of satan aka black sunday that's um it's weird it's yeah. it's, it's kind of worth your time i but haven't seen it's, it so. it's it's uh, i don't know that i think you ha- i think you definitely have to uh <clears throat> Go to the special antenna ah. to seek that one out. I don't know that there's a. I, I know there's not a release here in the states. So how did Rodney see it? I, I have an All Regions player. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. yeah well, it, I've one. got one
3: too. So, so there you go. Yeah. So later we'll, on tonight, I might just have to order that from the air and <laughs>
2: <laughs> put that in the old player room. So um, there are uh, a lot of references in this film, I think, to earlier uh, Antonio Margariti gothics. And I think that plays nicely into some of the stuff that he's able to do here because he really does take advantage of being in color. There's a lot of color gels here I feel mm-hmm. like he's I feel like he's he's going out of his way to kind of play heavily or maybe even try to one up some of the color gel stuff and the color lighting that uh, bava was doing at the time and that was becoming kind of uh the, the normal thing to do in this in this genre there's a uh, man there, there's that great scene where well, oh, you know we'll get to it. we'll go through the plot in a moment but I, I i'll rewatching this i was just really surprised and impressed by uh there's a scene where uh the camera is underneath two characters as they walk down uh walk down a couple of steps into a crypt and uh they, he set up that the, there's uh, sunlight coming through, through the a, stained glass. Stained I've glass actually everywhere. got that in my notes, too. That's beautiful. And it's beautiful, but what's wild is that there are two characters in the shot, and each one is lit a different mm-hmm. color. And you know, if you think about it, it makes zero sense from the angle at which the, stain, the stained glass is a, is above them and the camera is beneath them. So what we're seeing is ridiculously impossible but you don't mind and you don't care in the moment because it looks so damn good Mm -hmm. but um, the um, (laughs) this is a fun movie but I tell tell you what here's what we'll do Uh, years ago uh, because folks I have been doing this for a very long time years ago I wrote a long form review of this film and I did a, a fairly okay plot synopsis and I'm just going to use that plot synopsis, and we'll stop. We'll stop at different points as we have different uh, different things we want to toss out and speak on as we go through the plot of the film. Now, are there any snarky remarks in the comment section from the
3: online review? <laughs>
2: uh, I don't. I, I don't, I don't know. I should. I should read those. Uh, everyone knows that there is no good that has ever been gained from reading a comment section <laughs> on a website. The only thing that is... nothing, sir. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 trolls trying to find balls to kick. So it's just <laughs> pointless and stupid. So, so all right, this is uh, seven deaths of a cat's eye. I've got a lot of different points to make and a lot of interesting things to point out as we go through the movie, and I'm sure you do as well. Yeah, I'll
3: just sort of jump in. I've got. Uh, we may be on the same
2: page a lot. We may we, we may very well because I have the feeling this is a uh, very much a uh, uh, a film we're both going to have a lot of affection for.
5: Is.
1: I lost art when I was a little girl.
0: A long, long time ago, eh?
1: It's just as I remember it. It fits the McGreev legend perfectly. Why are you doing
5: that? Oh,
0: it isn't anything. It's just an old custom with these parts.
2: Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye, 1973. Okay, the film is set in and around, uh, as we've said, a large Scottish castle named Dragonstone. And as the story begins, we see an anonymous man being killed in the castle by an unseen assailant. Uh, He slashed up good.
3: Yep, and that's my first point that I want to jump in on because the movie opens with that gorgeous opening shot with the colors of that that lamp, with the spider webs through the lattice, Mm -hmm. and the guys scream... It really starts off with a bang. It's just a great, great opening.
2: It, it really is. The, the the blood splashes across the spiders, mm-hmm. spider webs. and It's, it's almost a, a statement of purpose of we're in color, it's gothic, and it's going to be bloody. And it's yeah. all there in the first like 15 seconds. Yeah, it's just bang, just right in your face. <laughs> really nice way to start the movie. Uh-huh. Well, that body of this person is dumped in the cavernous cellars beneath the castle, where rats immediately start devouring his face. And they Uh, immediately devour him, too. They are hungry little guys. I know. It's just like, damn, they've been. It's like somebody alerted them hey, guys, hang around. I'm going to be dumping a human corpse down here. (laughs) I need you to help me out here and disfigure Mm -hmm. this body as quickly as possible. And luckily, the cat,
3: who's really good
2: at witnessing murders,
3: but not very good at killing rats, doesn't do much to stop them.
2: (laughs) I I think the cat, this is my theory, that cat, who witnesses almost all the murders in this movie, and the rats have struck some kind of a (laughs) chord. There is a treaty. <laughs> that could be. A very carefully worked out, uh, uh, you know, signed in blood kind of statement of purpose. I don't know. But I think that the fact that the cat never makes the slightest move toward any of those big juicy rats down in the cellar means that either he's overfed or he has struck some kind of satanic deal with the rats. I'll be up here. i you be down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Dragonstone is the ancestral home of the McGreef family. But the current Lady McGreef uh, is having a little bit of trouble maintaining the place. Seems funds are not as uh, forthcoming as they used to be. Uh, and that that appears to have been a fairly common thing uh, moving into the 20th century mm-hmm. for these families trying to hold on to these large ancestral estates in, uh, oh, I know in Europe, and I'm assuming Scotland would be the same way. So. And that was actually, it was so. So much
3: out there that it was even a plot on uh, the later season of Downton Abbey. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That yeah. they were going to maybe have to downsize. They did have to downsize the staff, and some of the other estates in the area were possibly being lost. So, yeah. but
2: Downton Abbey did not ha- did not have a gorilla. They call an orangutan, and it didn't have razor slashing murders. Right? No, and that's where the show failed. I yeah yeah. That's I mean there was a lot of a lot of interesting things in Downton Abbey. I saw the first season only, mm-hmm. uh, and I can say that it was intriguing. But uh, the, the lack of razor slashing probably is why I never went any further with it. See, I thought that that might happen, so I stuck with it.
3: You, <laughs> you held out hope. You held out I hope for thinking. years. It's going to happen. Thomas is going to pick up a butcher knife out of that kitchen <laughs> and go nuts. And he is going to go to town. He's going to start with Daisy
2: while she's in the shower. <laughs> and you were waiting for that. I was. <laughs> yes, you were. Thomas! <laughs> okay 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 so the lady of the house the current lady mcgrief and okay let's let's stop there for a second the name mcgrief Mm -hmm. it's i swear that's a name built to be both scottish and amusing okay (laughs) (laughs) we got the mac to go okay see scotland Mm -hmm. and grief to just kind of rub in, hey, by the way, this whole family, this whole family's got knows nothing but horror and terror, <laughs> grief. That's all they ever get. It's never going to be good. Their lives are going to suck. And as the movie goes on, you realize yeah, they they seem kind of cursed. Yeah. Not in the way that the movie kind of sets up in this in this weird little weird little sidebar thing that they do that doesn't really pay off in an in any interesting ways, but uh, well, anyway, the, the, lady of the, the lady of the house, the place, uh, she's uh, she's recently been rebuffed in an attempt to get financial help from a visiting relative, uh, that would be Lady Alicia, when the unexpected arrival of Alicia's young daughter, Coringa, changes Lady McGrief's plans. Now, Coringa is played by the lovely Jane Birkin. hmm And it had been a long time since I watched this movie, and I'd forgotten... Uh, While I find Jane Birkin to be a very pretty lady, she's what I would refer to as a typical uh, kind of twiggy, late 60s, early 70s, waifish model type. Uh, She was a very talented lady. Uh, She made a lot of movies. She's in Blow Up. Yeah, 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 and uh, also uh, you know that long, uh, long uh, recording career with uh, Serge Gainsbourg, Gainsbourg mm-hmm. uh, who is also in this film by the way, playing uh, playing the uh, not so Scottish uh, po- po- police captain. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the accents, trust me. But uh, the uh, Jane Birkin. There is an odd thing for me about Jane Birkin, and that is, um, have you ever have you ever known? Of a beautiful actress, a woman, even a model, sometimes. That sometimes you look at her and you think, "My God, she's just gorgeous." And other times you look at her and you think, "No, she is not. She's just not." Mm-hmm. And with Jane Birkin, I have that. I have that odd little twinge in my head because sometimes I look at her, and it's it's her it's her upper teeth. I was just gonna say okay. we we yeah. are on the same page. She's okay. got okay. she's got British teeth. Yeah, she does, and it's really um sometimes. It adds to the effect of her beauty, and mm-hmm. sometimes it does not. And uh, I I can't put my finger on you know the, it slides back and forth. There'll be so, some scenes where in the scene at different angles, she does not look attractive to me, and then at other angles within the exact same scene, she looks so beautiful that my that my blood boils. I'm just like oh mm-hmm. my lord, that's a beautiful beautiful lady. But it's it's odd. I'd forgotten mm-hmm. that I have that kind of split reaction to her mm-hmm. where. She does a fine job in the film. I think she's. I think she's great in the movie, but at the same time, uh, you know, one of the one of the one of the reasons you hire a, a beautiful lady like this to put in the lead is that she's going to draw the eye. And she is very photogenic, obviously, and she's someone who uh, you know at this point, could, you know, knew how to interact with people on screen. She knew how to 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 uh, be an actress for film. So you're never bored watching her there's always something of interest when you're looking at her and it's not just you know staring at a woman who's clearly a beautiful lady who knows how to move but she's also uh, there's something there's something about her that that works on screen she's she's got whatever that mm-hmm. make, that indefinable thing is and so going back and forth and having that split reaction it was really interesting because it was just another little bitty element that I know may not happen with everybody, apparently it did with you, but it's another one of those elements that kind of kept me really interested in an odd way. It's just another little point of interest in the movie that I don't think would necessarily be there for everybody. Right. So, I don't, mm. I don't know. And one thing we need to mention, too, is um, who brings Jane Birkin to the castle? Who's driving the coach? Well, he's called Alan Collins. Mm-hmm. But that is, of course, just a fake, bullshit, pseudonymous name (laughs) for uh, one of my all-time favorite Italian actors. A man whose entire list of credits I could sit and spend the rest of my life just watching. That is Luciano Pigozzi. And I absolutely love him. He is, uh, as we've said before, we've talked about him a number of times because, holy crap, did Antonio Margariti like using Luciano in his mm-hmm. films. Um, he's often talked about as kind of the uh, Italian Peter Lorre. Yeah, and, and in it, fact, in Italy, Booberry is modeled after him. <laughs> don't start that bullshit. <laughs> don't start. Don't start with your, your bullshit jokes. Boo Berry. Hey, Boo Boo-Berry. Hey. Boo-Berry. Luciano is Luciano Boo Berry. Where is he hiding the bomb? <laughs> But he is such a—he's a great actor, and he is—he ends up being one of the victims in this film. But he—he's—I he's, love seeing him in movies because mm-hmm. he's just one of those great little characters. He's like uh, character actors. He's so great. He's—he's uh, uh, he's like Victor Israel in Spanish films. He's just one of those guys you can always count on. But he's got this. As soon as you see his face, you never forget him. I mean, they—they mm-hmm. you know, they may hide him behind, you know different dubbing where he's got a he's got a scottish accent in this (laughs) he's got like a little mustache he's got a mustache different and uh he's able to pull off a lot of different things trust me folks if you are are at all a fan of european horror cinema from the 60s and 70s you have seen him and he was in i mean he was in the whip in the body blood and black lace werewolf in a girl's dormitory castle of the living dead oh my lord for uh antonio margariti he was in uh and god said to kane that gothic spaghetti western he was in god save us he was you know we were both remember him from mr super invisible
3: ah yes
2: <laughs> he was also in um, the He was in, for for Baba, he was also in barren blood he was in uh, all the colors of the dark which is you know an amazing film uh, he was in just a he was in arc of the sun god we talked about him in in, mm-hmm. in that film of course he was in so many cool films and uh, he really, I mean, he, especially in his younger years, he really did look like an Italian Peter Lorre. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see him in this. And I'll say this. I got to thinking about this as I was watching the movie. Uh, I don't know that I ever got to hear Luciano Pigozzi's actual voice. Because everything I've ever seen him in is dubbed, of mm-hmm. course. And so I have no idea what his voice was actually like. And then you know, we, we can joke around a lot about the fact that of course he's got he's got a severe Scottish accent in this, as do two or three other characters. <laughs> when I'm assuming that all of the characters should have Scottish accents, but they don't. Um, he has a Scottish accent. I think the the the, the two other the two servants the two uh, the the kitchen servants mm-hmm. have Scottish accents, and I think that's about as far as they stretched it. Did, did the the older priest did he have? I don't remember, I don't remember but I don't either. think so. But I do lo- I do love that 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 uh, that actor, and he's uh, <laughs> Alan Collins. Mm-hmm. We all love you, but we know what your real name is. <laughs> he he passed away uh, I think in two thousand eight. Uh, lived at a ripe old age. He was uh, in his eighties, but uh, always always loved seeing him pop up. He's so good. Anyway, uh, now I'm, I'm I'm off on a tear. Okay, that
3: was my fault. But I just had to. Bring him up before we
2: glance. Oh no no no! Over him I completely I understand. Uh, well, Lady McGrief's plan <laughs> is uh, she's got, she's got the idea that maybe she could set up a romantic match between her son, Lord James McGreef, and the uh, the beautiful young woman played by Jane Birkin. She uh, she she hatches a plot to kind of bring them together, and uh, the reason for this is that James is a recluse who supposedly killed his baby sister when. He was a child and has been kept a virtual prisoner in Dragonstone his entire life. James's sensitive side is shown in the movie by his hobby of painting and in his choice of pet. Now, this is an odd piece. This is where you get into the area where, why in the hell is, in this, is this in the movie? Uh, James's pet is, uh, they keep calling it orangutan in the film, but it looks, to me, it be a gorilla. It looks like a gorilla... That may have
3: chased the little rascals around. It's like it's about on that level of authenticity.
2: Well, I, w- I, w- I will say they they're v- they're very smart. <clears throat> it's 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 clearly someone in a, in a gorilla suit mm-hmm. or an ape suit, however you want to phrase it. And they're very clever. Margariti knows that if he spends too much time with that gorilla suit in motion, it's going to look like shit. So he does his damnedest to give you only flashes. Of the gorilla and when he shows it for any longer than a few seconds it's being very still it's, it's sitting and like staring at people mm-hmm. or you know clutching the bars of its cage and things like that which is a smart move because a, 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 a little bit of gorilla goes a long way in a film like this where the gorilla ain't even serving a real purpose yeah this is a movie that could have used an invisible champ. Uh, yeah, this, this could have been an invisible orangutan or gorilla or whatever yeah, you want to call it. Because a real orangutan would have definitely upped the game in this thing, too. Imagine. And this is something that I thought originally years ago when I first saw this movie. I was like, well, wait a minute. Is the big monkey going to end up being the thing with the razor blade? And I, was, I guess I was flashing
3: to Dario Argento's Dude. phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> like,
3: Whoa. I actually had that thought, too, as you go through the movie because there's, of course, about a half dozen red herrings that you go through thinking, ah, that's it. No, that's not it. And I thought for a second or two that that
2: could be it. Well, the red herrings fly by all the time. There's just enough emphasis on the red herrings to kind of keep each one stuck in your memory with kind of a hint of what's going on. There's so much strangeness having some of these weird things fly by. I mean, just the idea of having the house cat uh, witness most of the murders if not all of the murders is Mm -hmm. weird in and of itself and the fact that they fold the the house cat into kind of a legend the kind of horror legend that surrounds this rather cursed family is pretty cool as well but let me let me get back to the yeah we're getting going way off the plot already yeah yeah yeah. back to the part where the mother of james
3: is trying to hook him up with his cousin
2: right 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 which is that will work out great because incest is best (laughs) That's it's, right. Good Lord. Well, anyway, so James is a bit of a messed up guy. And I'll be honest, I really like James as a character. He's, he's, he's such a fucking pissed off guy. Plus, he's dreamy looking. This is a handsome fucker, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lord James McGrief is played by uh, an American actor named Hiram Keller. And uh, he's from Georgia. Did you know that? No. Yeah, dude was from Georgia. I think, it, uh, I think his father was actually like in state government in Georgia. Very handsome guy. Uh, made his bones. Uh, spent uh, in uh, theater production. A uh, big theater production of Hair. Sadly, died of liver cancer in the late eighties. Hmm. Um, yeah, apparently. Yeah, it's, it's sad, to, sad to say, but uh, very handsome guy. Very well thought of stage actor, and honestly, I think he's quite good in this movie. As he well. is. Yeah, he's got like kind of a almost a Jim, a Jim Morrison sort of air about him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're right. i <coughs> that, that that's exactly the uh, the the look they're going for for him. And uh, although they 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 do a good job of kind of, of of keeping everybody in in period. Yeah, he's he's a handsome man mm-hmm. in the in the Jim Morrison mold. And uh, he's he's quite good in this. And I, I looked over his credits, and I don't know that I've seen him in a lot of other things. Although he did a number of films, his dubbing—he's you know the, the the English dubbing is quite good. And he's—I'm not sure if that's his voice either. The voice matches really well. I'm wondering if he's one of the actors who actually dubbed his own voice because it's a really good performance, and the the vocal performance is extremely good too. But I will say that the, part of that may be this is a period of time when when the English dubbing done for Italian films was extraordinarily good. Mm -hmm. Uh, you may have noticed in the opening credits of the movie, a credit for additional dialogue by Ted Russoff. Now Ted Russoff is, is incredibly famous. He was a great, uh, voice, uh, voiceover, uh, uh, director. He not only did a lot, I mean like a lot of voices in this movie. I mean, in, in, a lot of Italian movies, uh, he was kind of uh, in control of, like you know, directing the uh, the ADR stuff, all the all the, the the voice looping for all, most, most, like just tons and tons of these movies. And he's kind of famous because he did participate in a lot of these movies where he would write extra dialogue as they were dubbing. To 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 like smooth over plot yeah, points him, and, to, and to get them to match what was being said. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he actually gets an on-screen credit for this movie for additional dialogue because his contributions, I guess, must have been considered to be hmm. that important or that influential in how the how the film was shaped when they you know when they went to the editing hmm. bay. But the uh, he's very good. I forget which uh, voice. I'll I'll look it up here in a minute. But uh, Ted Russoff actually is uh, one specific voice in this movie, and I can't remember which. And uh, maybe the priest, but I'll, I'll 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 look it up here in a moment and find out. But um, the dubbing in this is very good. I would like to know. I don't know, but I would like to know if Hiram Keller, uh, who plays Lord McGrief, if that's actually his voice or not. I can't remember. Watch it turn out to be Ted Russoff. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the plot. So uh, James is um, getting getting set up to uh, hopefully uh, bed his uh, bed his cousin. I think his mother thinks that this will calm him down, but really, I'm not so sure she's looking for him to calm down. It's so much just we need an heir, <laughs> we mm-hmm. need we need somebody else. We need another. We need another generation in this family, essentially. Because she had already brought in the living oh, yeah, French yeah. Well, teacher. Yeah, we'll get to that. The, the well, the, the the back to the gorilla or orangutan or whatever they're going to call it. This poor sucker. He, 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 James says he bought him from a passing circus because he'd become violent. And I'm yeah, thinking, he killed somebody. Yeah, he killed somebody, and so the, the lord of the manor took this gorilla off the the passing circus's hands. I'm thinking, that's not that's not what you're that's not a good idea. Um, this poor creature has a violent streak, and he's somehow gotten out of its cage recently, which makes you wonder what's going on. See, that's where I started thinking. You know, gorilla with mm-hmm. a straight razor. This is where this film's going. Okay, James is a really embittered guy who resents his status as a kind of virtual prisoner in his own home, and uh, he demonstrates his anger in, in, in one evening by insulting most of his mother's dinner guests. Uh, I love that scene. Yeah, he's really good at it. <laughs> he he comes into this dinner where there's um you know there's, there's the family and then there's uh, the, the the two the two local priests and and the the doctor of the house who's supposedly uh, the you know, Lord James's uh, doctor and who's actually there banging Lord James's mother. And he just tears into these people, verbally insulting the holy living hell out of everybody in sight. As a matter of fact, I think it's so good, you probably ought to hear it.
0: Welcome to my house. I don't remember inviting any of you. James! James. Pray go back to your room. Mother... Your priest could tell you that you pray only to God. Isn't that right? Campbell, at least bring me something to drink. But James, we didn't think you'd come down. Mother, you think too much. I hope you all accept a toast to your health. As you obviously don't give a damn about mine. You're Coringa. That's right. It's strange we never met before.
1: But we have. It was a long time ago. You don't remember, I suppose. I was just a girl. But I remember you very well, and your little sister.
0: James, don't you? Doctor, you ought to know better than anyone else. I'm not authorized to think. James, please. Go to hell, Doctor. Reverend Father, do you think they would accept people like him down there? James, that's enough. Of what, Mother? If you're worried about your guests, I repeat, I did not invite them. I cannot help noting your bad manners, James. You failed to impress me. For that matter, it's none of your affair. No one asked you here and no one's keeping you. My dear, you know you don't mean these things. I mean them.
1: Coringa. We're leaving. You're very rude, Lord McGrieve. I'm sorry to have met you.
0: Run after them, Mother. Coringa, wait. Hurry. Maybe you can still get some money out of them before they leave. Oh, what the hell are you trying to save? An important thing, James. Our family name. <laughs> if it's a question of saving a good name, Suzanne, you may as well leave too. How oh, do you require the good doctor's authorization? I think I'd uh, perhaps it's best please excuse me (laughs) it was such a nice family reunion this fondness for being destructive James it's not going to help you much but doctor I've got you my mentor my guardian angel you know father I'm mad and Dr. Franz Hertz, a luminary, a genius, you could say, has left love, honor, and fame behind him to devote himself solely to me. Isn't that moving? I believe you've drunk too much, James. What else have I got to do? Don't you keep me locked up? Didn't you get me into a straitjacket just because my mother is ashamed to admit that her son, O'Magreef, might be mad, eh? But I am mad, and you can't blame me if I seek my own destruction. Thou shalt not destroy that which the Lord has created. I don't find you so terribly mad, my lord. On the contrary, you seem rather strangely lucid, even though I may not appreciate all you say or do. Father, you surprise me. You're not just another puppet. Listen, James. If I stay on here, it is only out of fondness and admiration for your mother. Doctor, you move me strangely, so please stop. I can't stand it. Please excuse me, Father. The Lord McGrief of McGrief now takes his leave. No, 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 no. Please sit down. I only regret that I don't leave you in good company. Good night. Very strange, young man. Strange? He's mad, Father.
2: Quite dangerously
0: so. Let me explain.
2: Uh, well, as you as you can hear, the only person who seems to uh, be able to get any respect from uh, Lord James is the newly arrived village priest. Um, he, he doesn't tear into him for some reason. I guess it's because he's he's so newly arrived that he hasn't built up any resentment. He yeah, does a lot him. of material on him yet. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure he's taking notes. The object of most of the Lord's vitriol is his personal doctor-in-residence. That would be Franz, played by Anton Differing. Mm-hmm. Anton Differing you've seen probably in roughly a thousand films. Circus of Fear, Manicotique Death. Manicotique yeah. Death. Um, oh, the, the, the Amicus Werewolf film from the mid-70s. Oh, and now the Screaming Start. No, 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 not the, the no, Not that one. Um, um, Tarnation with Peter Cushing and um, Beast Must Die. The yeah, Must that's Die. it. I'm sorry, I was thinking... Of, those amicus things yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well Anton differing is great he is the he's the the doctor he's uh, the, the doctor Franz, he's got the dual responsibility of uh, treating James's supposed madness and serving as Lady McGreef's lover uh, friends he clearly you know takes to the bed of Lady McGreef um, as, as a duty I think he routinely beds her but he also keeps up regular appointments with Suzanne the sexy quote-unquote, French teacher originally brought to Dragonstone to entice James to produce an heir. Uh, Lady Alicia's response to Lord McGreef's dinnertime rudeness is uh, to make swift plans for she and her daughter Karinga to leave the castle. But that night, someone slips into Lady Alicia's bedroom and smothers her to death. Lady McGreef convinces Franz to falsify the death certificate, even as both of them claim to be ignorant of who murdered the woman. That makes you wonder, huh? Mm-hmm. Somebody killed that woman. Well, especially since... Um... The lady of the house was trying to get
3: her sister, who was Jane Birkin's mother, hitting her up for cash. Well, yeah. I can't give it to you if I wanted to because it all goes to her.
2: Right, right. And right. now
3: there's one less
2: step, one less step in the way. In the way there, she's mom's gone. Not, yeah, mom's not there. So if we get Jane Birkin's character married off to my son, mm-hmm. then our money problems go away and the castle remains. I don't have to think about it because that's something she's always getting pressured to sell the sell the castle, sell the estate. She could live comfortably in London. <clears throat> Wouldn't have to worry about money ever again, and she's mm-hmm. really resistant to that. She does not want to sell the place. She wants to keep it in the family, and so now this uh, this little death has made it a little bit easier. Which, of course, immediately points a several arrows right at her. Mm-hmm. I love a murder mystery. <laughs> so many questions to ask you as we get as we go through this, but so Koringa that's the Jane Birkin character, has been amused since childhood by the tales of the family curse, which states that any McGrief killed by one of the same blood will return as a vampire to exact revenge. Now that is a plot line that makes you think we're going to get some supernatural shit in this movie. And I don't want to spoil too much, but don't hold your breath. Yeah. Don't, don't look for too much of that. There's, there's, there's some interesting stuff going on in this movie but if you're hoping for vampires, well, outside of a really great dream sequence, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: there ain't none. So, well, I don't want to uh, spoiler. Ain't no vampire. Sorry, I don't. I, maybe I should have. Maybe I should have said spoiler earlier. Well, I think you're probably good. I, I don't, I don't, nobody I know, nobody I calls would, this a vampire film. But, right? but you would
3: think, though. I mean, you, you think for sure there's going to be vampires when the cat jumps on the coffin, right? Because a cat who follows a dead person, that means that person is a vampire. Which is legend that
2: no one ever heard before, until this film. (laughs) But boy, it screamed in this one. Here's, I know, they they keep, okay, okay. This is one of those movies where, and I like this, but at the same time you have to, you 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 stride a tightrope when you do this kind of thing, which is a film introduces as kind of just common knowledge, some bit of a legend or some bit of a supernatural lore that you as an audience member are supposed to quote-unquote know. But it's total bullshit, and so they introduce it in the film. They state it to kind of quote-unquote remind you And therefore, you know, what it is is reminding the characters in the film. Mm -hmm. But it's really just reminding the audience that this bit of lore exists. And so you know, okay, that's one of the ground rules. At least that's one of the things that the movie is setting up as a possible ground rule for how, quote-unquote, the supernatural stuff in this movie works, right? Well, this movie has a couple of those things. First, you have the McGrief curse. It's like, okay, okay, family curses, whatever. It's kind of weird that there's a curse that's built around family members murdering each other right. that's really fucking specific
3: i mean that's a pretty dark curse on a family to begin with yeah i mean if you've got family members off each other
2: yeah. it happens enough that there's a curse around yeah, yeah they've, they've built this entire legend around uh you know the, what, 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 here's my question was it like dads who got fearful of the sons like you know if you kill me your life's going to be hell. <laughs> this is what it's going to be. About. So you know, son. <laughs> so you know. I know you're thinking about killing me because I treated you like <clears throat> shit when you were little. But so I, I don't know that's a pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty weird. But then they add on. This is where they're getting. That's where they're they're walking on the tightrope. Where they add that whole thing about if a cat follows a corpse, then it's a vampire. It's like, what are you fucking talking about? Mm-hmm. Where did this come from? This is never. This is this is a total piece of fiction and it's like you're getting real close to making me go hold on now because unfortunately or maybe fortunately the movie never plays with it again so it kind of introduces that to just kind of play once again with the idea of vampirism as a possibility here but luckily the way it plays out in the film all it really does is put those ideas into Jane Birkin's character's head and cause her to have some really horrible nightmares yeah which is great uh, because at least then I don't have to I don't have to feel like it's such a horrible dangling thread of silliness, flailing around out there in the wind that is just a, just a distraction. Because within the course of the film, it actually it actually has an effect on characters in the movie. Uh, turns out to you know turns out that there are no vampires in this movie, so that's not a consideration. But it is nice that that thought we ha- we have to know about it because it's informing the characters, kind of. Fear of losing her mind later in the movie, so that's cool. Mm-hmm. I can I can deal with it that way. But if they'd introduced one more ridiculous legend concept that we're supposed to just accept, <laughs> it would
3: have been too much. So, well, I did think that the cat was really cool because not only did the cat witness this murder, yeah, but then it went to the funeral.
2: <laughs> it wanted to pay its respects,
3: <laughs> and then it's like shot from a cannon to land on top of the coffin.
2: It's it's not quite what Troy and I used to talk about on the Nashy cast. It's not quite the the you know the 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 cannon lot launched mm-hmm. cat. It's not you know it's not being actual, actually leaps from a tree. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Which which is good. I mean cuz at least we've got plausible deniability on this, you know, this cat appearing out of nowhere. It's like no no, we saw the cat in the tree. We saw the cat looking down on the funeral and then it jumps onto the coffin. Okay, good. But yeah, it's not like you know you open the the incredibly dusty obviously not opened in years cupboard and a cat jumps out. It's like how the fucking cat get in there? How did the cat get in the uh, <clears throat> the rats put it in there? Well, that I'm pretty sure that was the, the part of the uh, Treaty of Versailles signed by the, <laughs> the, the the cat and the the the, 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 the Castle Cat Mouse Treaty. Oh lord, they struck some they struck some kind of deal. Anyway, <clears throat> So, to say that Coringa has been amused for years about this family curse story is one thing, because she does talk about it a little bit, but then it kicks, in, it kicks into that nightmare sequence for her, and I think that may be a problem for her. When her mo- uh, well, later on, she discovers her mother's coffin has been ripped apart, and the body's missing. She starts to, and then Coringa starts to fear that the curse may be more than just a bedtime story. Soon, servants are being killed by a razor-wielding murderer, That's where the black gloves and the razor comes in. Uh, She does uh, manage to, uh, you know, writhe around in the bed with Lord James. So, you know, we figured it was going to happen, and it happens. Uh, I can't figure out for the life of me why. I mean, he tells, uh, Lord Lord James tells us why he's not, you know, busy stooping the living shit out of the sexy Suzanne. uh, Because, good Lord, that woman. Ooh la la. To say the least. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. that, that That's the that's that, kind of live-in French teacher I wish I'd had. <laughs> I'd have learned a lot more French yeah. with her enticing me mm-hmm. than with my, with my various French teachers, I'll tell you that. Uh, uh, at one point or another, the gorilla slash orangutan is uh, on the loose. And, of course, the police are stumbling around trying to solve the murders the whole time, too. And now we kind of have to decide if we want to spoil the film. And I kind of don't want to. This is a movie where... I've, I've spoiled the fact that you ain't going to find no vampires because I kind of wanted to spoil that aspect of the story so that people don't walk into this movie thinking, okay, it's an Antonio Margar- Margariti horror film, and uh, they mention vampires up front. I'm going to get some supernatural vampires later on. No, no, that's not what happens. I wanted to put that out of your mind so that you can enjoy this for what it is, which is a, a gothic murder mystery. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I'm, I'm, we may, if we spoil the ending here, I think what we'll do is we'll announce it up front. So right now, I just—I uh, don't think we have to, but I one we of to. us might blurt it out as we go. Yeah, so. we might. So if we blurt it out, I, don't know, I may even—I may even cut it out. We'll 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 decide this as we go. But I guess we did kind of spoil it that it is not the gorilla. <laughs> we we did point out.
3: Excuse me. Orangutan. orangutan.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's one ugly-ass... That's an orangutan. That's one ugly-ass orangutan. Yeah. Here's my question. This is something that, that, that could be a possibility. just occurred to me. Maybe, since it's obviously a man in a gorilla outfit, maybe in the actual story it's a man in a gorilla outfit and no one ever knows that. That could be. This guy was it, you talk about deep cover. He was he committed as a to gorilla. The role. He was committed to the role. He was he like, lived as a gorilla as an orangutan. <laughs> <laughs> and for years, for years he wanted to correct Lord James is I'm I'm a gorilla. I'm a gorilla. it's a gorilla. It's gorilla. Gorilla's, James. It's if gorilla. I t- Maybe he'd believe it if I scrawled gorilla in some of that paint. No. Maybe no. if I flung poop at the wall <laughs> and made the word gorilla from the scat. <laughs> that would be good. Let's talk about a few points that I'm 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 kind of I find I find of interest of this uh, in this film that are uh, kind of to the side in a weird way. First, a little a little surprised and very happy that no animals die on screen in this movie. I thought the same thing as well. As soon as it started and I
3: saw rats, it was like, "Well, One of those guys is going up in flames before this is over. (laughs)
2: He's going to be chopped to pieces. Or something, yeah. Somebody's going to take a sword to it or... or or, Yeah, something, right? But no, that does not happen. This is an Antonio Margariti film that that does not kill any snakes Mm -hmm. or burn any rats. In fact, the rats
3: get to eat because they're eating something on that corpse at the beginning of the film. So maybe the movie is rat-friendly?
2: I think it might be. It might be. It might be a rat-friendly film. Um, So... I'm I'm kind of surprised by that. We've already talked a little bit about how it is such a colorful movie. Margariti really was going out of his way to uh, light this in a very colorful way. I, I all, I'm always a big fan, especially by the late '60s. I'm a big fan of Margariti uh, choosing uh, interesting angles, shooting sh- shooting scenes from uh, from interesting perspectives. I like uh, I like everything that he's doing with the camera in this movie because. It, it, it it's very um, it feels very smooth. Uh, when there's violence, uh, he's using a handheld camera to kind of give you a sense of un, un, unrest mm-hmm. because it makes it a little it makes it, uh, it it gives the the images a different feel and it immediately kind of puts you off a little bit because everything else in the movie is so smoothly done and, so, and there's some there's a lot of really great camera moves and and uh, the placement of the camera and the choice of shots is really nice throughout. Yeah, one thing that talking about the colors. We mentioned the opening shot
3: yeah, w- with the colors through the lamp. I like how that same lamp makes an appearance at the end of the film, Yes, which is a nice callback. Mm-hmm. Something that you may not notice the first time through. Um, but then the second time, so, ah, there's that lamp again. So I thought that was a nice little way to, to wrap everything up in a nice bow.
2: Well, I thought it was neat. The movie does start with that murder of a character. And we, throughout the movie, we are introduced to a couple of different characters stumbling across that corpse in the cellars underneath the uh, castle, but everyone keeps it quiet. Uh, uh, Jane Birkin's character runs across it, and she and the two two kitchen servants conspire to keep quiet about it for some reason. And it's because they they, they have their reasons that make sense within the body of the film. But what's neat is that um, that keeps reminding you that hey, there's this unsolved murder at the beginning of the movie that the main characters are only tangentially aware of. They don't even know mm-hmm. the, they don't even know who the body is. They don't know who that corpse is, and so that is that's the that's the the opening mystery that gets solved at the end that wraps up all the other other mysteries as well. Once you find out who that corpse is, uh, that's the that's that leads to the solving of. Who the actual murderer is? Yeah, and in fact, I'm going to have to spoil it. Okay, at okay. the end of the
3: movie, spoil, spoil that, that corpse turns gets out to be. up, and it turns out he's been the guy setting all the traps.
2: <laughs> Nobody noticed he was breathing. Nobody through the whole thing. He threw rats all over himself. <laughs> okay, I, I got, I got, I got in trouble a little bit with. Uh, okay, uh, with uh, speaking speak, speaking of Adrian, Adrian Smith who's done a couple of podcasts with me on here, Uh, back in the summer, he and I covered another Antonio Margariti film. We covered uh, Hercules Prisoner of Evil. And uh, uh, here recently, um, I made the mistake, well, not really a mistake. Um, I sat down and I finished watching the last few films in the Saw series and uh, did not enjoy the experience. I don't think those films are particularly good. I, I think the best that they ever get is mediocre uh, I don't. I. I think the series is, you know, was incredibly financially successful for various and sundry reasons that have absolutely, absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the films. But one of the things in a discussion online uh, about uh, the various movies that was a fairly general conversation I did uh, in a in, while speaking with someone who was a fan of the first movie, which I thought was miserable. Uh, I did say that I found that everybody seems to think the ending of the first Saw movie was just this incredible ending. It was a real shock. And I was like, no, I thought the ending of the first Saw movie was incredibly stupid. And then I explained why. And Adrian jumped in and said, hey, man, spoilers. I still haven't seen that movie and I kind (laughs) of want to. like, oh, shit. I'm thinking, man, that movie's like, what is it, 15, 16, 17 years old? And it's like, okay, I gave away the fact that there's a dead body that isn't dead at the end of Saw. If the movie hadn't already been broken as far as I was concerned, that breaks the film Saw right in half and makes you realize that it's, it's a stupid, stupid script. But... Trust me, saw had ruined itself long before then. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but yeah, the idea that yeah, let's just have that body pop up and and actually be alive—that would be that'd be great. That'd mm-hmm. be that, that would be awesome. He was willing to let the the rats eat his face just to be able to stand up and surprise everybody at the end of the movie. That'd be great. Well, he's just like our killer in the gorilla suit. He's <laughs> devoted. He's devoted to his role. That's right. He's gonna sell. He's gonna sell being a gorilla slash orangutan. And he's going to sell it hard. That's right. He's selling it real (laughs) hard.
0: They'll exhume the body, Mary. They'll find out the truth. I'm a stupid idiot, a total imbecile. Why did I ever sign that certificate? I wouldn't be in this mix-up now. Why do you say that? I'm afraid. I admit it. This is homicide. Murder. That means an inquest. (laughs) then there's no worry at all, dearest. (laughs) Don't forget that the people around here still have a great deal of respect for the name I bear. I'll see the inspector myself tomorrow. Believe me, there'll be no further talk of exhumation. First was your sister, followed by Angus. Only who killed them, Mary? I have no idea, Franz. Only it was not my son. But it had to be someone who profited by it. It could be quite the contrary. Someone wants the end of Clan McGriff.
2: One of the criticisms leveled against Jallo's most of the time, and one that I can understand and honestly I do agree with, is that most films in the genre revolve around a murder mystery that there is no way the audience can solve. In other words, the movie always holds back detail or uh, information in some way or another that keeps the audience from ever being able to be ahead of the characters in the movie. In other words, it's not like an Agatha Christie story where you might be able to dope it out if you're clever enough, if you if you notice certain things, if you pay attention in the right way. There are a number of Jallos that are that way that you can figure out, right? That you can, if you pay attention, if you're eagle-eyed enough, you can spot, you know, the killer in Deep Red. You can spot... Uh, this you know d- different things like there are movies in the genre that allow you to dope things out, but most of them don't play fair. Mm-hmm. I agree, they don't play fair, and that's uh, that's a criticism I can understand. But it's also something that for fans of the for fans of the genre, I think that we're along for the ride. We don't really care so much whether or not you can dope out who the murderer is before it's revealed, because part of the joy of the twisty turny ride that is this genre. Is what you're getting to experience as part of the ride. The it's fun to play around. It's fun to to look at the red herrings and dismiss some, and and then uh, you know figure that well, there's no way it's that because it's this and those and that. Those are fun, but I will say that this is definitely a movie where there's no way in hell you're going to figure the mystery out. Not at all. Um, There were there there are things I had you know. When you're watching the movie, it had been so long since I'd watched this movie, I had as is usual for me with these movies, I'd forgotten who the killer was, right? So when it's revealed at the end, I'm like, hey, okay, well there are jokes to be made here, but definitely I had eliminated as I'm as I'm watching the film for the first time in so many years, I had eliminated several characters that I knew, okay, there's no way that one's you know, this character's too obvious. That character can't have because um, we know what they were doing at the time the murder occurred, and then they, his characters get killed, right? And, and yeah, then it is the cast gets whittled down. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's let's not split hairs. I mean, there're not everybody makes it to the end credits. Boy, do they not? But the various and sundry murders, uh, for me, they only the, the murders only got only like took away a couple of my my lingering suspects as I went along. So that you know that's kind of cool, but. Do you, as someone who I know enjoys this genre, for instance, the other night we watched What Have You Done to Solange? And once again, it had been so long since I had seen the movie that I had forgotten who the murderer was. And when the credits were over, you and I actually uh, talked about the fact that, oh, you know, what I I had thought was that there might be like another little string to pull at the Mm -hmm. end. But then after the fact, I realized, "No, no, no, they can't pull that string. It wouldn't make any sense. But at the time, I thought that they might do it. Do you, when you're watching these films, Mr. Hudson, does it matter to you if the film plays fair?
3: No, not at all. Because for me, it's the fun of you think, even though you know your first guess who the murderer is, isn't going to be right. Yeah. You think that's going to be it. And I think the fun is watching that one be eliminated and then think, oh, maybe it's here. And you start to fill in the blanks yourself to the point where you think maybe it is the gorilla. So <laughs> I I, for me, it usually doesn't matter if they play fair or not because they usually don't. It's just the fun of trying to figure
2: it out. sometimes it's even more fun that way because you're trying to solve a puzzle without all the pieces true and and for me I think it's it's kind of fun i i enjoy um I enjoy when the movie actually does when you can look back at the film and the movie did give you clues. But you couldn't put them together. You weren't you weren't quick or clever enough mm-hmm. to dope that out while you were watching it the first time. I, I like that aspect. I like that aspect of a film that that manages to do that to you. But like, what have you done to Solange? The character who turns out to be the murderer isn't even introduced to us as a speaking character until the final third of the movie. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no way that the film goer could have sat there and go, "Wow, we've been paying attention to that character since the very beginning." And, you know, the, wow, wow, all of those suspicious things that I ignored really were trying to tell me something. Yeah, they're all right there.
3: And well, this one, it definitely doesn't, because after I watched it the first time, mm-hmm. of course I re-watched to take some notes and right. pay attention to more things, and I went back with that in mind, like, okay, it's like the second time you watch Fight Club, Right. you start to notice all the clues. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, they're scattered throughout.
3: And this one, it's like, well, there
2: still aren't any
3: clues. No, I no, no. I didn't no. miss anything.
2: And, that's, and like I say, I think it's, it's the enjoyment of the ride that is, that is the whole point of this to a large degree, and that's, that's great. That's, that's why we're watching these films in the first place, at least I think. Another thing I'd like to point out, or think about, which is um, throughout the the, the, the... the title of the film is Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye, and one of, the, you know, one of the major plot points is that we have this possibly supernatural element, which is this cat does seem to be around witnessing all of these murders. And I think it's neat that the cat kind of becomes the, the herald of impending violent death in the movie because past a certain point, especially after the second one, you start to think, well, so every now and then when we're following this cat around the castle, are we about to see another murder? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we are, and sometimes we aren't. And that's a nice balancing act to kind of keep you off you know, off your game and kind of wondering whether or not you're gonna, you know you're about to see another slashing murder. Um what did you think? I will say that I think that uh, the film, although it does have some nice you know rather thick tempera paint style blood, uh, I did actually I was a little surprised that it wasn't a little gorier. There's not really what I would I mean this is pretty safe violence for the most part.
3: Yeah, it's pretty much just red paint splashed on somebody yeah, or thrown yeah. against
2: the wall. I think there's one shot where uh, there's an appliance applied or maybe two. I mean, if you ignore—and I don't know how you could ignore it—if you ignore the rat, the rat chewed face, which I guess maybe you can't ignore. So, but there's really only one shot or two shots of characters whose throats have been slashed, where you know, they you know—they put some, you know, appliance, mm-hmm. a makeup appliance on the neck to to uh, show you the wound, and nothing's lingered on for very right. long. So. Right. Right. Uh, and and the film is much more interested in playing around with uh, bodies. You, We, the audience, knowing where a person was murdered and that body no longer being there and being discovered somewhere else, like in a coffin that it's not supposed to be in or something of that nature. The movie's much more interested in uh, playing around with the mystery of why are these bodies being moved? Who is doing this? Um, because each, you know, each one of those things you're reading as a clue to help you figure out who the bad guy is, who's the murderer. And uh, I think that it's fun that this one very much uh, had me start to think as I'm going back through it, because like I said, I had forgotten the ending. I started to wonder if we were watching the effects of there being two people working in tandem Mm -hmm. because um, like I say, movie leads you down a few paths that turn out to be dead ends, but some of those paths might not have been dead ends. If you had two people working together and playing with that idea you have the franz character the doctor character who could be plotting with the hot french chick or he could be plotting with the mom because we already know they've kind of already fudged a death certificate to make things go a little bit more smoothly with her sister's death so maybe these two are working together maybe there's you know an aspect of their relationship we're not privy to i don't know but uh I did think it's right. I'm not going to steal credit for this, but someone did point out online that uh, the, they thought that um, possibly Ridley Scott kind of took the idea of the cat witnessing the murders and kind of incorporated that into Alien. Now I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I don't think he necessarily had to have seen Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye to get that idea, and that that idea may have just been part of the original screenplay from Dan O'Bannon and. Um, Oh, darn, I've forgotten the other fellow's name. Um, the fellow who wrote the screenplay with Dan O'Bannon. Oh, my goodness, I've blanked. And so have I.
3: Oh, well, at any rate. Um, my, right my. now the listeners are screaming at us. <laughs> yes, they, they are.
2: Scream away, can't hear you, can't hear you. But. That's right. In space, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> har, 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 And in Dragonstone, it's Dragonstone, no one can hear you scream either, so there.
3: Except the cat. <laughs> the cat can see you, too. Now, speaking of things that I think may actually have influenced something else... One shot in the film that I think may have been really influential in something else is the bit where Jane Birkin has locked herself in a room and someone with a straight razor is trying to get in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put the razor through the door and they're trying to lift the latch with it. Which is played out a lot longer in Suspiria, but it's way too close, I think, for it to be a coincidence.
2: Yeah, because this, uh, this is four years earlier. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's not something... I think I've seen that kind of thing in other films, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. But that you're right, that is a visual callback. That is a neat little suspense piece where the mm-hmm. murder weapon... Is being used to gain access to a room, which is pretty pretty interesting in and of itself. Yeah, and the way that the razor is sort of like teases
3: it, and it goes on a lot longer in Tysperia, but I, yeah, it's really close the way that it's set up. So it may be coincidence, but I, I don't I don't think so.
2: Now, one of the my favorite things about Margariti films is uh, spotting his special effects work, and I'll be honest, I can't spot. Any miniature work in this? Now, there may have been some miniature work. Did you spot any miniature work? I didn't. Work? That was actually one of the points I was
3: going to bring up. I don't think there was any. Everything looked pretty set-bound. Um, yeah. I didn't see any space where there would have been any. unless um, possibly like that stained glass ceiling that we were looking at through the mausoleum. Oh, that that's a possibility, I guess. Something yeah. like that, maybe. But there weren't anything like... Big shots of the castle from the outside that were miniatures. Or, no,
2: there's a lot of there, there's a lot of that stuff is on on actual locations. Yeah, you I can mean, tell those are real. Yeah, That's a real yeah. castle,
3: but there weren't any that that look like miniatures or well done miniatures. I, I don't think yeah. there were any in there.
2: Um, and the reason I ask is that I think the the place in the film where Margariti really got to play with creating some interesting special effects is that fantastic yeah, dream, dream sequence. Uh, it's it's when Jane Birkin's character has this nightmare. That her uh, dead, her smothered dead mother has returned from the grave and is talking to her. Um, and of course, one of the great things about this. Of course, we both watched this. I'm assuming off of the the, the Blue Underground yeah. disc, uh, which uh, put the entire film back together again. It, there are a number of sequences in it that were. Uh, incorporated from the Italian version of the film that weren't dubbed into English. The film was shortened down and there, so therefore there are a few scenes, something under three or four minutes of the film that were trimmed out and therefore never dubbed into English. And so when those, when those sections of the movie come up, they're subtitled. And so that becomes very easy to spot which sections of the movie got trimmed out. And a couple of the scenes you can understand, they don't, they didn't necessarily have to be there. Um, but the uh, dream sequence, weirdly enough, was one of the scenes that was subtitled, which means that it got trimmed out of the American version of this film, the English-language cut. And that that would be devastating to me because I think that is a wonderful, wonderful sequence. And it's beautifully shot, and it is creepy-looking. You've got that actress... Uh, uh, Coming back, you know, as this ghostly form of the character's mom, and talking to her and and warning her that the curse is real and all this, that, and the other, and it's shot through flames. It's really effectively done. It's a great sequence. And like I said, that's the only spot in the movie where I see the special effects hand mm-hmm. of Margariti coming into play beyond just you know the 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 rats eating the corpse or uh, the, the throat slashing or anything like that. Those are those are the only special effects that I see. Those are the only scenes I see Margarita getting to play in that field again.
3: Yeah, other than that, not much, which was surprising.
2: It, although it didn't jump out at I me, mean, but near the end I was thinking, I haven't seen anything like you would expect from his stuff. Yeah. Another thing to note is that one of my favorite things to spot in uh, European movies from the 60s, 70s, and 80s are the little bits where we are no longer on location. If we've been to... Uh, England or Scotland or Ireland or France or wherever to shoot exteriors. Inevitably, once we're back on sets, we're back in we're back in Italy, and uh, that's where they get into some trouble because English is a second language. And so, one of the funnier things that I noticed in this film is that um, the name of the family is MacGrief, which is M-A-C, and then grief with a large G, R-E-I or I-E-F. F two Fs, and uh, one of the things I noticed is that uh, the name McGrief on the mausoleum is two words: M A C space grief, and that is a fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean I don't I, I, like I say it doesn't it does not break the film in any way, shape, or form for me, but uh, that is not the way that name is is spelled or laid out that is not the way that is that that would not be the way the family name is put on the mausoleum so yeah keep that in mind yeah. and what it, what kills me is there are several times we see the name in the movie where it's either handwritten or etched into something else or written down or whatever and it's done correctly i guess none of the people in that scene which is every other
3: character in the movie Looked up and noticed it. it. (laughs) No, it's just the set designers. Yeah, the
2: people who built that mausoleum set. Well, someone could have looked up and said, "Wait a minute, is that how it looked when you saw it earlier?" No. (laughs) Well, it's it's not as bad as you know seeing signs that say "Do No Entry." Yeah, or or noticing uh, like one of my favorites is um, in um, the Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. Where you're, you're you're looking through a beveled glass in someone's office and you're seeing what's written on the beveled glass from uh, you know in reverse because it's it, it's facing the other way, but you're in the scene long enough that your eye can play over it and realize that it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> even backwards, it's like wait a minute that's wrong, and I can't even remember how it's wrong now, but uh, that doesn't make Living Dead at Manchester Morgue less a great film. But I do love spotting those bizarre little things where it's like, hey, you know, I don't think we're actually in Texas. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what? I think that's poor English. That's poorly translated. And no one caught it. Well,
3: one thing about this movie that... Where this movie didn't fail, but where I think there was just a failure in the cosmos, was that there were no sequels starring Serge Gainsbourg as the (laughs) detective.
2: Now, let's talk about that. If people aren't aware... Uh, we mentioned it up up at the top. Uh, Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbourg, Gainsbourg were uh, an item. They were together for man like thirteen, fourteen. Pretty years. long time, yeah, until about nineteen eighty. Jane Birkin was actually her first husband was actually John Barry, the uh, the film composer mm-hmm. who who did like most of the James Bond movies up through the uh, the early eighties, and who did the, the the incomparable score for Star Crash, of course. <laughs> but, uh, but so they were married for a few years and then she uh, that marriage ended and she was with Serge Sir Gainsbourg he plays the uh, the, the lead cop mm-hmm. who's uh, ineffectually working on this murder although it turns out that he had doped it out oh he knew he just didn't yeah. tell anyone <laughs> yeah well he I think that he didn't have any he didn't have any proof mm-hmm. and it's the ending of the movie gives him his proof I, th- I thought that was pretty neat but it is. It is neat. It's anybody could have played that role. Serge Gainsbourg does, you know, perfectly fine job, no problem. But at the same time, it is an odd little thing that the two of them are in this little, <laughs> this little gothic horror film in Italy in 1973. And he does have kind of a
3: cool. And they would have been together at that point. so yeah. that's probably why. But he does have kind of a cool demeanor about him.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, and he's perfectly good within the film. Mm-hmm. He but I would
3: love to have seen more movies with him just wandering around, sort of solving crimes. <laughs>
2: And his character kind of, sorta has a Scottish accent. Yeah, in
3: a way. And and if you're not familiar with him, I his he's a guy who's recorded like hundreds of songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like no other music you've ever heard. You can't impossible to categorize. But if you're curious, go on YouTube and look up uh, either Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Or the comic strip or um, Doctor Jekyll and Mansoor Hyde. Um, those are probably good places to start. But the promo clips for Bonnie and Clyde and uh, Comic Strip have uh, their duets with, well, not maybe duets exactly, but Brigitte Bardot is in the clips. Yeah. So they're a lot of fun to begin with, but check out his music because it's really fun. And if you want to, um, a good one CD retrospective is just called Comic Strip. It's like a nice sort of Greatest Hits. That's
2: good. See, you get a little bit of culture with this episode. And you don't normally expect that from me. (laughs) You definitely don't expect it from me. That's for damn sure. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe expecting it from you would be a little, little more ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, you're the yeah. one that's looking for farts in space. So, but that was a fart in space. No, but that's wrong to even think down. That. Anyway, but
3: the other thing that has nothing to do with this movie, <laughs> but I was reminded of it while I was watching this movie, is the gorilla slash orangutan because I think we can all agree that the greatest orangutan in film. Now, you might think it's Going Ape with um, Tony Danza. No. no but one, it's no one. No one thought that. No it's one. not. It would be Clyde in every which way
2: but loose. <laughs> and any, and which, way any way which way you can.
3: Now, now in the
2: which, 70s. Which performance, which film do you think Clyde gave his better performance? I think it
3: was probably a little better in the first one because the role was fresher to him. <laughs> You're probably right. I think he felt a little bit like he was treading over the same ground in the second one.
4: Eh, yeah. But yeah.
3: the great thing about that movie is it gave me some ammunition to use on my dad. Whenever I would be watching <laughs> oh. something
5: oh, no. and my
3: dad would watch with me and said, Well, that is really something there you're watching. That's really intellectual, and not it, son? That's just quite entertaining. I said, so, I guess it will be better if an orangutan flipped off some bikers, huh? <laughs>
2: And I would.
3: Dad would did it? not appreciate that because he loved that orangutan flipping off the bikers, and he couldn't defend
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! No one can defend their 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 sense of humor, man. It's so just, that was always great. was like,
3: I got him on that. I can't win many arguments with my dad, but I can win that one because this ain't as dumb as that. <laughs>
2: Oh my lord! So I've been as I as I said we we we've manfully kept from spoiling the end of this movie, and I think we'll try to keep it that way. So that's good. But just uh, in generalities, what did you think of this film as a whole? I really liked this film. I thought it was really
3: fun and really good. It's always interesting. Had you had you seen it before we decided to
2: cover it for the show? Because it was your choice, I didn't know. Yeah, if Yeah, and seen it, it
3: had been forever ago, okay. so long ago that I couldn't really remember a lot of the gothic elements. I just remember more of the razor and the gloves and right. so on. Um, but it had been so long that I'd forgotten most of it.
2: The, I I, I love this movie. I think <clears> I, I think I end up giving it a seven or an eight out of ten. I think I think it's just an entertaining movie. I think that it um, if it has any any problems at all. It could be just a little bit shorter, which may be why when they when when it when it was dubbed into English, they thought to trim it down a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But watching the full length cut, I wouldn't want to remove anything myself. Even though, like I say, there's at least one scene that they did remove that was subtitled. You know, taken from the Italian print. That I I can see why they would take it out because it doesn't really it doesn't really add anything. You, I thought that too. That that one could go. There was another scene that they took away though that
3: actually sort of has a character pop up where they weren't there before. Yeah. And I thought that wouldn't have made a lot of sense if you're watching this. Like, where did that guy come from?
2: But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I can't quite tell if there's a particular character that I couldn't quite tell. Did he live at Dragonstone or did he just live nearby? And that's... that's that was, was never made clear. It was right. never made clear. And I think that once you get to the end of the movie, the reason it wasn't made clear is obvious. Mm-hmm. They, they Then you realize why that was left a little fuzzy in the narrative. And uh, I think you can get through the entire film without it ever really sticking in your sticking as something that you've got a question about until the the end of the movie, which is nice. You picked this one, so I guess I get to pick the next one. I think so. Although, do we want to rate this one? Oh, I, I like I say, I'd probably give it a seven or an eight out of ten. Yeah, same here. Um,
3: my only, it's not a complaint about the film at all, but the uh, the DVD is right for an upgrade, which I think there's one out overseas, so.
2: I'm surprised this one hasn't uh, hasn't been Blu-rayed here. Uh, I assume it will eventually happen, just because it's uh, it's got a number of points of interest to make it sellable. Mm-hmm. Not just Jane Birkin, but you know, this, there's the Jane Birkin, Sarah Gameborg thing. There's the you know the 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 weird aspect of it, the 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 Gothic horror aspect of it. The, there's an the, there's there's just I mean, you show anybody the trailer for this film, and you're gonna get. You know, you're going to get some interest because it is so colorful, and, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of really nice things in it. There's there's pretty people and bloody deaths, so I think that generally that's going to draw some more interest than average. Yeah, those are two great tastes that go great together. <laughs> yes, and, 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 yeah, and peanut butter, of course. I would probably
3: give it about a seven, seven and a half as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is this is a really neat film. This is one of the this is one of the ones where. It's obvious at this point, Margariti's been a director for over a decade, a, a film a film director for over a decade, not just a special effects man. And he's clearly gotten to a point where he feels so comfortable that he's able to play around. He, he, he's always known all the mechanics of filmmaking. There's no, there, there's no stiffness here. I think we both agree, for various asunder reasons, that his early films, like the, the Gamma One film and things like that, when you start looking at those... They're, they're rather stiff. There's reasons for them to be stiff because of the, the speed with which they had to be made. But there's also the stiffness of a, a young director mm-hmm. who's really being careful about getting the movie on screen, getting the story told and, and getting things into place. Um, and by this time, he's done he's done enough films. He's, he's made so many films at this point and uh, had his name on a few films that you know he was only kind of overview, overseeing that he's kind of uh kind of figured things out to a degree where he, f- he he's making really entertaining films and it feels like he's really in the groove. It, I I think it would be really neat to watch uh if you can get a really good copy to watch Web of the Spider and this back to back because they're very different stories but they're both color gothics.
3: Yeah, they would make a nice double feature and of course Web of the Spider
2: coming out on Blu-ray soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so. very curious. I'm very curious about that set because uh I, I I do fear it's going to be. I do fear that it might be one of those movies where we we don't get as good a release as I'm hoping it's going to be. Because what I want <laughs> is for Web of the Spider to blow me away visually. Yeah, and uh, because it's so clearly made to do that, and yet every print of it that you can find is muddy or cropped or anything like this. That's another thing about this. Is like Web of the Spider. This one shot. Very wide screen. This is shot 2.35 to 1, and so was Web of the Spider. And it's like, you know, there's a part of me that just wants a good-looking print of Web of the Spider that's in the correct aspect ratio so I can finally appreciate the full image. But if you like Italian gothics with uh, some weird elements and, you know, man in a gorilla suit slash orangutan suit, then you're good. This one's going to work for you. Yeah, I think
3: so, too. And one last thing we probably need to address before we wrap it up, because I know we... Ticked off at least one listener last time when we made remarks about uh, uh, Margot Hemingway's looks. Oh,
2: oh yeah, that's right.
3: Um, yeah. we didn't say Jane Birkin was ugly. Oh no, no, no. We didn't say no. We just said, you know, it, it, don't, don't, don't hate us for that. She's definitely, <laughs> I mean, Margot Hemingway was ugly, but Jane, Jane Birkin's a, a very pretty lady. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, you're just trying to push buttons now, Mister Hudson. Well, just Troy. Uh, although as Troy very well put, he'd say, yeah, I like you two would have kicked her out of bed when you were 14.
2: <laughs> <laughs> By the time I was 16, I would have kicked her. No, I yeah. wouldn't. No, I, would I wouldn't have known what to do with her, really. I would have tried. I would have tried anything.
3: But yeah, yeah no. although if I woke up looking at Margot Hemingway's face in the bed, I'd say, oh my gosh, somebody put a Vincent Price shrunken apple head in my bed.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, you are a child of the 70s. God save us all. Okay, hold on. People, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back very briefly and uh, try to decide what Antonio Margariti film Mr. Hudson and I will talk about next.
1: Hey, movie nerds. This is Bobby Hazard here, along with uh, the Colonel. And we're here to tell you about the Spring Break Forever Podcast Network. See, we got this one podcast where we talk about movies you can watch for free on the internet called No Pants Sunday. We also have my own personal podcast called I Hate Music. And we also talk about uh, music and other stuff on No Pants Sunday that involve that No Pants lifestyle. (laughs) And we also have another podcast about Alice Cooper that I host with a bunch of people called CooperCast and in the future we're going to have Beat on the Cast which is a Ramones podcast
2: will there be a podcast about an Alice Cooper movie to tie this all together I don't know tune in and find out Spring Break Forever podcast network
1: yes uh, we're on iTunes Stitcher uh, yeah Stitcher uh. <laughs> Podbay. that thing and wherever else we'll mirror our RSS feed suckers And we also have a Tumblr page, springbreakforeverpodcast.tumblr.com. Check it out and enjoy the rest of the bloody pit.
2: a number of Margariti films this year we did more than we did last year but we didn't do as many as we probably should have tried to do but i know that we love covering the antonio Margariti film so i know we're going to keep it up mm-hmm. so what uh I'm, 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 i hate to say it folks this is october at this point uh, and we've got plans for uh december you and i and troy will be doing uh, another holiday horrors film for december uh, have you two decided? Because I, I, that, that, I, I put that in your lap. I let you guys decide what the holiday horror will be. We, have, we, have you decided? We've narrowed it down to two choices. Okay. Well we haven't decided, haven't decided. Okay. for certain on which one. So I'm assuming that we'll probably end up doing our next Margariti film in January of uh, next year. So keep that in mind. Uh, this is my choice. I'm going to go with a film known, known under a number of titles. Uh, you can find it on DVD under the title naked you die it's uh it's another uh murder mystery thriller takes place at a girl's school therefore it's going to be awesome Mm -hmm. actually i i I do know the film i already already know the film uh look up the dvd under the title naked you die the film is also known under the title the young the evil and the savage it's from a 1968 and a little bit of trivia it was originally going to be a mario bava film huh but uh, Bava got the chance to go and make I think Danger Diabolic that's when that uh, that deal got struck and so the script and his notes got turned over to Antonio Margariti and he made it well I'll be darned so that's what we'll co- that's the next Margariti film that we'll cover good little movie this gives people a chance to uh, locate that DVD and uh, watch it for yourself I do recommend it and uh, we will continue this Margariti thing uh, as the uh, as our time on this podcast continues I can't. I can't wait to find it. I love having you and Troy deciding what the holiday horror will be each year. It's always. Mm-hmm. It, it allows me to kind of just sit back and and feel like I can just kind of absorb it and you know whether I've seen the movie or not, just kind of absorb it and move forward. Luckily, I've seen most of them already, um, but yeah. I, I keep I keep being fearful that you're going to find some obscure, bizarre thing that you know I've never seen. Well, you know, so far we haven't felt the need to do
3: that because we're having fun going with with the biggies yeah because they're fun to talk about um and this year our two choices um one of the two i know for sure you've seen the other i'm guessing about 99 percent. so
2: (laughs) well cool 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 um well we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to this uh we we uh, understand that although antonio margariti is big to us And we're enjoying going through his films. He is one of the lesser known of what I consider to be the big uh, Italian genre directors from the 60s and 70s and 80s. He's somebody who uh, hopefully we're drawing a little bit more attention to because his films are worth your time and attention. They're always entertaining, even at his worst, Antonio Margheriti will keep you looking at the screen and wondering what's going to happen next. At his best, he's making some of the best Italian exploitation films that you're ever going to see. So um, look for another Margariti film probably in January, early next year, sometime around in there. Mr. Hudson, uh, have you got anything else? No, believe it or not, I don't think I do. I can't believe that you don't have anything to say. But, hey, I'm going to take the little blessings as they come and move forward with my life. Wait a minute. Why, you? (laughs) Yes, you shimp bastard. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you once again, Mr. Hudson to for uh, for coming on and doing this i know that um it's it's a subject that uh you didn't know that much about and so you're using the the podcast as a chance to explore this man's filmography and uh, i'm glad that you're enjoying it as much as you have yeah uh, i'm having a ball and it's
3: been fun because a couple of them i have seen most of them i haven't yeah and um even the ones i had seen
2: i hadn't really put it in context of this larger body of work so it's been a fun ride for me so far there's and and the 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 great thing about it to me is there's just so much variety. You know, mm-hmm. He made so many different types of movies, and I, I think that it'll be a long time before we uh, we tap uh we, we tap out on Margariti films because you can you can choose so many different things. You never you you, you you know everything from action to to Gothic horror to science fiction to you name it to and invisible to, chimps to, to invisible chimps. Yeah, God, was there ever a spaghetti western with an invisible chimp? And do I want to know the answer if it's yes? Wait a minute. Can we get investors for that? Because (laughs) start a Kickstarter. That might be your
3: million-dollar
2: idea right there. If that's my million-dollar idea, I'll take the money. But I'm going to do it with a mask over my face because, oh, my God. And I hear that you like to do it with a mask over your face. (laughs) I am. Whether you know it or not, I am El Santo. So, (laughs) So thank you once again, Mr. Hudson. And thank you, sir. I am Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. And we will talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody.
3: A Philippe from the Village People or a David Hodo from the Village People? And which one is the more masculine? Well Felipe know. Rose was the Indian and David Hodo Which one had the mustache? David Hodo was the construction worker, so oh, he all had right, a mustache. mustache. Alright.
2: You ain't that.